All right. Well, welcome, everyone, to the podcast. You are listening to the Compositional Podcast. Uh, my name is Noon, and I am here with my friend, Lyndon. Uh, Lyndon, would you like to introduce yourself um, and tell us a bit about what brought you into the kind of functional programming world? Yeah, certainly. Hi, um, I'm Lyndon. Um, yeah, about me. Well, currently I'm working for Hasura, um, and I wrote a, you know, excellent blog post. <laughs> um, so that's probably why I'm on this show right now. But um, I see. made you famous. Yeah, I'm world famous now. Um, but yeah, the, what got me into functional programming um, to start with back in the day uh, was a um, university uh, course that I did, which was, um, I forget the exact name of the course, I think it was PLDC or something like that for Programming Language Design Concepts, and um, we covered a whole bunch of different languages. Uh, I think maybe 10 languages in 10 weeks or something like that. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was great. Um, we, we tried to cover a lot of different paradigms, everything from uh, logic programming to like old school um, KSH shell programming. Um, and Scheme was one of the languages that we covered. Uh, and I thought that was super cool. Um, but uh, yeah, so so that kind of piqued my interest. I hadn't really done much um, functional stuff before then. I only really touched Java and um, and C and Ruby um, at that point. But did uh, you build yeah. the same thing in every language, or was it kind of like no, a different? You did no. something a bit idiomatic in each of them. Yeah, it was. Um, it was just kind of like basic tutorial stuff for each language. We didn't really build anything of substance. It was. It was really a kind of like introduction to paradigm style course rather than a let's build something useful. Um, but yeah, no, that was super cool. And um, and I think yeah, if you if you are <laughs> enrolling in a university, um, you know do yourself a favor and make sure they've got a course like that because it was just great. But I'm assuming most of the um, people on the podcast um, have already traversed through that life experience. <laughs> but if you get a time machine, then go back and do it. Yeah, um, yeah. Right? Uh, but yeah, so then um, after that, I uh, I liked, liked the idea of FP. I didn't really write any scheme day today, but... Um, yeah, I kind of like tried to adopt the paradigms and uh, and found it fun. I had some friends that were um, doing some functional programming stuff later down the line in Clojure, um, who were very excited by it. And uh, yeah, that's when I thought I'd um, I'd dust off uh, some of the functional stuff and and try learning Haskell actually, because. Um, I thought it was like, I, I always loved esoteric languages. So um, I think the site is like esolang.org or something like that. But there's just hundreds of different bizarre languages. Um, and I always liked finding the weirdest ones out there. And, and I thought, this is all well and good for, for fun. But if I ever want to make something actually useful, like what's the esoteric language for that purpose? And, <laughs> what's um, the most useful, useless yeah, one? Yeah, exactly. And so my industrial esoteric language that I kind of researched was Haskell. And I thought, yeah. well, I'll, I'll invest some time learning this um, 
because you can do real stuff with it and it's fast and it's um you know elegant but also it's weird which i love uh, so, what is it about the yeah. esoteric languages that you like like what makes you pick one over the others they're just kooky you know like uh, <laughs> it's uh it's like a you're in a theme park and each different <laughs> esoteric language is a new cool ride you're in the kind yeah. of like haunted house of you know <laughs> um <laughs> whatever unlambda and then you move over to the roller coaster of um you know i don't know if this has explicit language warning but you know bf language or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah so yeah it's just like an endless um kind of parade of entertainment <laughs> diving into that world <laughs> but also like not just for fun's sake you you do learn a few concepts because they're usually very focused languages because the author won't really you know have the resources to bear to to create something like with a lot of features so they'll just kind of like pick one very conceptual idea and make that the heart and soul of this esoteric language um but yeah so uh i uh <laughs> I kind of jest, right? Because Haskell's far more general than an esoteric language would normally be, but uh, but it mm. still kind of like ticked some of those um, interesting idea factors and amusement factors for me, but while still being able to kind of do industrial applications. Yeah, so you were kind of having fun right away, or did you find it like a kind of steep, steep learning curve initially? Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, horrible learning curve. Um, <laughs> it's much better these days. Uh, but back when I learned it then, and and this wasn't even early days for Haskell. Like, it's uh, it was out in the eighties. Um, I can't even imagine how difficult it was to pick it up back then. But um, I assume you had a professor um, telling you how to do it if you were learning it back <laughs> yeah. then. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, these days uh, it's great. You've got all these wonderful tools. Um, but when I was learning it, it was still still pretty niche like there were a couple of people doing stuff with it but um yeah i forget what year that was it would have been like in the in the mid 2000s or something like that i don't know yeah i know you've you've had some thoughts about some innovative innovative and wacky ways to learn haskell do you want to tell us about some of oh, those? so many yeah um, just after i moved to melbourne i ran a kind of series of haskell workshops um, I probably had a very um, amusing title that I've since forgotten, but uh, <laughs> anyway, they were just they were just kind of meant to be a series of like one or two day workshops to learn Haskell, and so I've done it in a in a variety of fashions. But the most recent one I did a couple of years ago um, at the most recent uh, Compose Conference Melbourne was to do, um, you know, like Jupyter notebooks. It was kind of like yeah. A Jupyter notebook full of broken Haskell excerpts, um, and each one would, you know, fail to compile and, and throw errors and stuff like that. And your job was just to kind of like fix each um, problematic example. Uh, and I, I think I maybe I called it like learn by crashing, or oh no, I called it crash school. Crash school. Yeah. yeah. Um, whether whether people should learn that way. Well, of course they should, because that's how they're going to end up learning anyway, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. They um, come in and everything's yeah. broken, and they yeah, have to right. fix it. Yeah, yeah, and if it's not broken now, they'll break it later. How did, did, did people pick up on it? Did they get kind of very concerned and worried that everything was broken, or 
or did they kind of enjoy it? Yeah, it was a kind of mixed bag of feedback. Like, um, I'm pretty sure most people have a similar experience when they run an event like this. It's like, uh, it's like shouting into a void, like, please give me feedback. And all you hear is silence. Um, <laughs> I, I, when I spoke to people afterwards, um, a few people were positive. Uh, I got like one very negative piece of feedback that I can't really remember what their entire complaint was, but I got quite annoyed. But uh, yeah. anyway, I'm sure it was valid. Uh, but then, um, yeah, I seemed to kind of find quite a few people didn't really get what I was going for, um, the approach. Oh, that's interesting. But uh, I, I figured that's my fault because I was like trying a new concept uh, and I really needed to sell it very strongly so that people would be like, oh, yeah, that's what this loser is doing with this <laughs> right. stupid so idea. So like, all your examples are broken, <laughs> nothing works. Yeah, this yeah. Terrible hey, I've tutorial. got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Exercise zero, 01 does not build. Doesn't compile. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, stuff yeah. like that. But no, I think, I think people, some people got some stuff out of it. Um, all of these kind of things that I do like that are at least partially for my own amusement. And in that regard, it was a great success. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you think that would work in the other esoteric languages or is Haskell like particularly good for, for that kind of style of learning? Yeah, it's fantastic because um, you actually get some guidance from your type errors uh, and you have mm. type errors. I think, yeah, I mean, there are typed esoteric languages, but I think like the vast majority of them are untyped. So yeah, there's probably a way to construct a, a similar style of approach to teaching them, but um, it's going to be, um, you're going to have to adopt quite a few crutches, whereas with Haskell, yeah. you can basically just kind of rely on, well, as long as you've, you know, neatly set it up to fail in a useful way, you know, it uh, you can just rely on the type system and the, and the compiler to kind of guide you towards a correct solution, or dig yourself into a horrible mess. Did that take a lot of work on your part to make it crash in the right way? Sometimes, um, but that wasn't really Haskell's fault per se. It was um, it was just the Jupyter Notebook environment uh, with iHaskell. Um, I think they didn't optimize for you having broken code in your notebook. I'll put it that way. Um, so, That's funny. <laughs> yeah, like sometimes I would have to try and find a way to get it to throw an error. Because <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> um, it would just kind of like do some silent shadowing or, or kind of I ignore see, missing see. cases or things like that. I don't know if, um, yeah. if I just set it up wrong or not, but certainly out of the box, it didn't always kind of act in the informative way that I would hope it would. Uh, but, yeah, I see. But it, it wasn't too onerous to, to kind of twiddle the bits and make it do do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to your um, career kind of trajectory, coming out of university, did you go straight to doing Haskell programming or did you do something else first? Uh, no, not at all. Um, so <laughs> you'll never guess what my first um, kind of professional language was. Well, I'm sure you wouldn't, but I'm sure most <laughs> people wouldn't. Um, it yeah. was. Um, it was Cold Fusion. I don't know <laughs> if wow. any people remember that language or even know that it ever existed. But um, <laughs> it's a very bizarre uh, language 
kind of kind of like PHP in a way, um, where it was very very much kind of like focused on this templating style, um, yeah. but it all kind of compiled down to Java classes under the hood. Um, That's just an odd choice. Yeah, it's, fair enough. It's got a, it had a weird history. Like surprisingly, it it could run pretty fast. And what I did uh, for my first gig was built the university's um, search engine uh, oh, using wow. a combination of um, this cold fusion stuff for the front end and um, a bunch of kind of lucene uh, driven indexing stuff for the back end. Um, yeah. And I, I kind of built that and maintained it for a few years. I'm a hundred percent sure they're not using that anymore um, <laughs> for their search engine. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was a wild ride. Um, the reason was because I applied for a different job in the kind of ITS department. Um, yeah, and I didn't get that, but my resume was um, so bizarrely geeky. Um, that they forwarded it to this other kind of like uh, information management team. Uh, I forget the exact name, but they they kind of were in charge of doing record digitization and um, and ontologies and stuff like that. And they said, "Well, we need someone to build a prototype search engine." Uh, this guy's probably pretty cheap, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a <laughs> what do we got to lose? <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, that was fun. Oh, nice. I wouldn't recommend and building anything in Cold Fusion ever. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen anything in it recently? I, I forgot no. the name until you mentioned it just now. I just, I no. just remembered. Yeah. I've, I've never seen anything else written in it. I think there was a conference um, that I went to. Oh, really? <laughs> um, where people were building things, none of which I remember. But um, yeah, I mean, people did build things and you could, you know, it had it had certain Use, like out of the box, it could do certain things quite ergonomically, but it was just yeah. a horrible, horrible hack. But you know, um, the, one of the funniest things about it was that it was originally developed by Macromedia, I think, or at least when I was using it. And then um, that was bought by Adobe, so it was kind of like this Adobe language. At least I hope I've got that right. <laughs> I love those Adobe languages. I, there was one of the funnest things that I did. I, I still remember it years ago. Is in Australia they ran a like an IQ test. They ran a global IQ test on TV, and the IQ test was um, administered via like a a Swift file with ActiveScript or something. And so what you could do oh, is SWF. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so what you could do is like because they were going to open it at a certain time, and then you had to get all the answers right. And then you had to like click the link to submit it, but it was all in an SWF where you can just download it and you could like un unzip it basically, see all uh -huh. the code, then hack your way to get the best score in the IQ test. Well, I mean, that's probably actually what they wanted you to do, right? That's a high IQ <laughs> kind of move doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I remember like I did it and I was so nervous. Like I didn't want to get in trouble mm -hmm. that I submitted, mm -hmm. like I tried to submit the winning IQ. But I didn't use my real name oh, no. because I didn't. I didn't want like I didn't want the police to come and get me or something. So I, no, didn't, Mensa, I didn't win. Mensa will come yeah. and bash down your door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't have a high IQ. Stop lying. Um, <laughs> that's that's, what, that's what I remember about Adobe. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you know, like they make some great software, Adobe. So, no doubt. Um, yeah, but I, I guess they're just not known for their, um, you know, server-side programming languages. But what do I know? Nothing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but yeah, after after that, I went and worked for an ISP for a while, uh, writing Perl, of all things, because all their code was written back in the 90s. Um, and actually, like, yeah, Perl is a cool language, um, no doubt. I think uh, it gets a bad rap, like at least when you kind of examine it historically, uh, it was super cool. Um, yeah. But that being said, like it's also like you can make horribly ugly messes with it very easily. I think I was reading in one of the, these Haskell, someone sent me a link to like the Haskell compiler design or 500, something to do with 500 and Haskell. And I saw that there was a giant Perl script in there, at least early on. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. It's all over the place. Like it's still installed by default on, I think, pretty much every Linux distribution that ever exists. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's cool. One of the things I did, because um, you know, I was kind of like maintaining a lot of legacy billing systems written in Perl. I had to find other ways to amuse myself sometimes. No doubt. Um, and one of the things I did was implementing a program obfuscated by using like Y combinators built in Perl. <laughs> and that was, uh, <laughs> that was. So what would it do? Very, very awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool. It could do it though, you know. But what did it do? What was it for? The program. Oh God, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I think it calculated <laughs> some kind of number or something. Oh, you obfuscated the program itself. Yeah. By, yeah. Because it was public or something, or just in no, case no. someone hacked in, no, or just neither. for fun, just for the for fun. fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think I was having a like friendly competition with some colleagues to like build a horrible program or something, and I was like, "Watch this." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Did you keep tinkering? Like, yeah. So, so where did you go to from there, and how did how did you keep up your FP interest along the way? Um. Yeah, I think um, I think while I was at that job was actually probably when I started um, having a go at a proper go at Haskell because I did I, after that course in uni I did kind of tinker with it very briefly but I was just like God this this is never going to compile you know like you can do yeah. your you can do your Fibonacci definition or whatever but after that you know it's very difficult when there aren't <laughs> too many good resources available. Um, but yeah, at the at the ISP, I was um, kind of mucking around with it on the side, and I remember I was kind of trying to toss up: should I use, um, should I learn Haskell, have another go at that, or should I learn OCaml? Because um, that's also mm. cool. And uh, and you know, I'd read some Jane Street blogs, and I was like, wow, this is getting yeah. some real industrial use. That's like pretty pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, I ended up I ended up not liking the the kind of aesthetics of OCaml as much, um, so I just decided to you know try harder and and learn Haskell. But I think I all in all I probably tried like three times before I felt it click and was like, okay, I should be able to get over any hurdles now. Um, yeah, it was it was a very kind of um, how can I describe it? It was. It was kind of like a frustrating exercise because I would, I would have an idea and then like, you know, like to express it, you, you kind of need to 
memorize a lot of stuff, I think, to become um, fluent at Haskell. And until then, it's like a real slog to be digging through all these kind of resources, a lot of which were, were kind of like out of date or whatever. And so yeah. I gave up a couple of times and I'm like, hmm. But then, yeah, the third time around, uh, I just, I bore with it and I, and I started building little kind of toy command line projects to do various things. And then, then it kind of clicked and I was able to kind of do some open source contributions and things like that. Um, but yeah, I remember at the time I was like pretty impressed with how terse it was. And I was writing all these little kind of code golfy things. And I had another colleague at the time and he, uh, he was another one of these people who liked doing that kind of stuff. And so I'd always challenge him. I'd be like, write a shorter program than this that does the thing. And mm -hmm. I'm ashamed to say, like, he would beat me almost every time with Mathematica. Uh, no, not Mathematica, with MATLAB. <laughs> and he'd always, he'd always use some little kernel function where it was like a single function to do the thing I had to do. And I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> I'm embarrassing myself. <laughs> <laughs> but um that's quite good yeah respect to matlab for the old um kernel functions those things are awesome yeah i think i also had like a lot of i i definitely had a lot of struggles learning haskell i think the only way that i was able to survive was kind of through github one day mm -hmm. i just learned that i can search on github for like the function or the type and then just mm -hmm. see how other people are using it and i think if i hadn't had that i would i would still not be able to do anything like it was really just so useful mm -hmm. so insanely useful for me because i i find it really hard to learn from um tutorials or blog posts or something kind mm -hmm. of have to mm -hmm. be hacking hacking on my own yeah that's a cool approach i i don't know that i've ever met anyone else who does that when they kind of like get stuck they just kind of look through github for examples of the thing they want to do like I'm sure other people must do it, but yeah. Yeah, because I, 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 I think the first Haskell program I built for myself was this kind of reference manager tool. And then I found someone else that had built, like I always had this dream for this pro, because when you st I studied maths and when you study kind of certain kinds of maths, they make you do all these incredibly boring things. Like here's, you know, here's some kind of set prove that it has some kind of distance property. And I was so, so, so terrible at that. It was literally my nightmare. Yeah, and yeah. I always dreamed that you could like just search for the sets and then kind of like have this big tree of all the facts that are known. And then I found someone had wrote a program like that. I forget what they called it, like Pi Theory or something. But they had written that in Haskell in Yesod, the kind of the web framework. And that was like my Bible. I just I just followed that for like whatever I wanted to do. And I was so happy that this person had not only built that tool that I wanted, but built it in Haskell, in Yesod, in something that I could follow along with. It was so it was so handy. Destiny. It was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh yeah. So that um that was I think that's when I like yeah, kind of picked it up and started doing some you know, semi-serious stuff with it. Um, and then after that, I went to Melbourne and um, started doing various bits and pieces at Silver Pond, um, which was cool. 
and there were even some opportunities to use Haskell for real stuff there. Um, I think on a project I built like a parser for electrical grids or something. Oh, cool. Which was pretty fun and uh, could spit out graphviz diagrams of various interesting interconnected transformers or something like that. So that was your kind of your first real world Haskell stuff? Uh, well, maybe. I don't know. Um, I mean, like some of the stuff I'd done before, like were libraries that you could use for real stuff, but it was it was the first kind of like real um, kind of application, you know what I mean? But it but it wasn't like it was only really kind of me using it for that project. I just needed the data, um, and I needed a parser, so I used Parsec and wrote the parser. Um, but still, it was cool. I got to use it for that. Um, and then, uh, what else? But yeah, mostly day-to-day, -day, like, the it was all kind of Ruby on Rails stuff, and um, until we kind of pivoted the company into AI, in which case, after that, it was all, yeah, TensorFlow and Python. Like, how did you kind of get involved in the Haskell community? Because from, from a Melbourne person's perspective, you obviously a kind of big figure in the Haskell community there so how did, oh, how did you get involved in that Enormous. just yeah, <laughs> biggest how did how did you um get involved in that kind of space yeah so i guess like not too long before i left um perth i went to the perth functional programming meetup and uh and i loved it like it was just a kind of quite small group of interested folks uh you know every month someone would bring a topic and talk about it i think i like talked about Agda or something while I was there, and I met um, some of the people who were kind of pirate pioneering um, some of the new refinement type uh, stuff, which was pretty cool. Um, and uh, when I got to Melbourne, yeah, uh, my friend Logan was running the uh, Melbourne functional programming meetup. Um, and, and that was great, and there was... Um, there was definitely opportunity to talk about some Haskell stuff there, but I, um, I thought like having um, a dedicated Haskell group would be cool uh, because how can I put it? I guess like you don't have to um, communicate with like a broader audience there. You can just really kind of geek out full Haskell geekery stuff and and assume everyone kind of knows what you're talking about. Um, but it's. Uh, you know, like, I I don't know whether I kind of regret doing that or not, because it would be cool if there was, you know, just a central community um, doing the FP consistently all the time. Um, but that kind of seems to have fallen by the wayside a little bit these days. It's hard. It, it feels like one group, often, like, I've, I've kind of noticed that where I'm living now, it feels like one group kind of ends up dominating the meetup anyway. It's, it's almost like you need a kind of, some kind of formal cycle for the meetup so people can like switch in and out. I think it's hard. Yeah, to you need like right. an embargo. It's like, that's been a little bit too much Haskell this year. If anyone right. says Haskell, they're banned. <laughs> they're out. <laughs> um, so that's right. Yeah, that could work. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's um, that should be adopted, especially at the Haskell meetup. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I think there's been months at the Haskell meetup where no one's talked about Haskell. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank God. 
Well, Melbourne's kind of a small place in some ways. So, yeah, like you do, you do need a little bit of kind of diversity at the at these kind of language centric meetups. Otherwise, you'll very quickly run out of speakers and topics and things. So,、um, yeah, I mean, unless you want to give all the talks as the organizer, which、um, I'm sure nobody ever wants to do, but sometimes <laughs> people、true. resort to doing.、Um, yeah. But yeah, so so yeah, like we kind of broaden it a bit. And we'll talk about other kind of typed things and category theory and whatever that kind of stuff because Haskell people like that kind of stuff. But、mm. yeah, it's、um, it's been good. I've been running that. I think maybe two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen is when I started that. Oh wow, a long time ago.、Um, and、oh, uh, yeah, it was.、Uh, it's great. Like it's a it's a small but interested community. It's running this week if you're in Melbourne. So,、uh, ah, plug, plug for yeah, that. What's, what's the、out. topic? Who's talking? <laughs> Don't ask that question、okay. <laughs> because there is no topic and there is no、Still、speaker. Still up for grabs. Still up for grabs. <laughs> But it could be you. When does、Get、this podcast、now. come out? <laughs>、um, that's cool. Yeah. So tell tell us a bit about、um, this. This you're at Hasura now.、Mm-hmm. So t- mm-hmm. tell us a bit about this project you worked on. Um, yeah, so、um, I'm assuming you're referencing the、uh, the blog post that project. I am. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, this、um, the broader project,、uh, if you're not aware of it, is、um, the GraphQL engine. So that's kind of、um, Hasura's premier product.、Um, and the elevator pitch is that it'll give you an instant GraphQL. API、uh, over. Well, it used to be Postgres, but now it's many things, including、um, Microsoft SQL Server and、uh, multiple databases at once, and whatever, a bunch of backends.、Um, but you know, GraphQL is so cool and so hip、um, that not everyone wants to use it yet for everything all the time. And so some people still want to be using、um, REST for stuff. Why not?、Um, and there's even some technical advantages of REST,、um, especially in the kind of like the caching space, because、uh, a lot of clients、um, know what to do with the、um, with the cache control headers coming back、uh, from REST responses, but they、um, they wouldn't have a clue. What to do with GraphQL, and nor nor should they even, because your request is made with a post, which you probably shouldn't be caching anyway. Who knows?、Um, so yeah, there's even some like technical advantages for REST. But I digress. What we wanted to do was to be able to kind of like save one of the queries that you were using against GraphQL、um, and create kind of like a a REST endpoint that served that purpose.、Uh, so it's a simple. Simple concept. I've got this GraphQL query. It's great. I want to turn it into a kind of like a REST endpoint. And、um, if there were some variables associated with that query, I want to be able to send them along with my REST request.、Um, maybe as query parameters. Maybe as JSON body. Maybe as URL kind of template variables.、Um, so yeah, it's, it's like pretty darn simple idea.、Um, But actually, it's it's kind of fiddly to、uh, to kind of like take something that was、um, totally geared around、uh, GraphQL 
and kind of like elegantly um, weld it to this rest idea um, without it being like totally ugly and um, uh, or, or just like very kind of gimmicky and uh, and not very powerful. Uh, so it, so we wanted it to kind of feel feel right when you used it and be like yeah I can I can do the things that I would be, be able to expect to do you know um, and uh, and when I try and do something that's wrong it should tell me why I've done it wrong ideally uh, before the thing is in production like when I when I go to save my horribly broken <laughs> you know idea it should tell me. Uh, you could fix that somehow, or maybe give up. Does that explain it? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. So you, you've kind of built this. This you've got this GraphQL engine, and you want to kind of help it. You want to help people use REST. So you've built this system for kind of transforming GraphQL queries into REST mm -hmm. endpoints. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so this um, this blog post, the uh, the thing is like. The project went very well, right? Yeah. And um, I mean, maybe some people are, are just blessed in life and all their projects go very well, but that's not always the case for me. And usually even if one goes well, there's a lot of annoyances that you just kind of forget about later. Um, yeah. But this one just went exceptionally well. Like everything kind of fell into place. And not only that, but it, the kind of like you know, planning and delivery cycles around, you know, going from conception of idea to like version one. It all felt very natural. There was a good rhythm to it. And so I thought, uh, you know, what's the term? I want to like put the lightning in the bottle. <laughs> yes. Capture it for next time, for next Capture project. It. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I thought, well, if I write down kind of like what we did, then maybe I'll be able to do it again. Who knows? Um, well, that's the kind of um, stupid, naive optimism <laughs> <laughs> that I'm known for. So. <laughs> it's right in my wheelhouse. Uh, yeah. But no, like I thought it'd be nice, nice for other people to hear about how we did it too. So yeah, I wrote up this blog post um, and I, I kind of stewed on it for a while. I think I spent about a month kind of just scratching my head in between actual work uh, yeah. and being like, what should I do? How should I write this? And then wrote about the whole thing in about like two days of actual you know, fairly intense writing, um, which is, uh, you know, that's pretty normal, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, that was good. Uh, and, and the main thing was, um, you know, when you've got a good title, the rest is trivial, so you know, is right? No, I couldn't agree and more. So, yeah. Yeah, and so I came up with this title, Succeeding While Avoiding Success at All Costs, that is so good. That's one of the best titles ever that I've ever mm -hmm. written. I'm sure there are better ones out there that other people have written. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was very happy with that title, and um, and I was so happy that I didn't even dare that to check if someone else had used it before because that would be <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I still yeah. haven't checked maybe someone else yeah, has thought of that best. first but um, I'm certainly not going to look uh, <laughs> uh, but I was very happy with the title and so now that I was 99% done I just had to finish writing the thing yeah um, yeah easy from there 
And I just kind of, uh, I tried to do a good job of, of making it like somewhat entertaining and somewhat kind of lyrical writing as opposed to something totally dry. Uh, and I think I got there in the end, like the, the kind of concluding visionary wrap up. Yeah, pretty happy with it. Yeah, and there, I was when when I read it, I was I, I read it again this morning. I was wondering about one thing. Yeah, and sure. There you kind of well, yeah. So maybe kind of the gist of. I, do you want to explain the gist of the article to people? Oh just? yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, everyone should go read it right now, and then we can skip this bit. Uh, yeah, we can. <laughs> we'll pause here. <laughs> wait for you all to read it. Yeah. No, you no. pause. We don't need to. I'll pause. pause. Everyone pause. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the the general gist of the thing is um, I kind of describe the feature um, and then I I basically kind of like talk about the roadmap that we put together right at the start um, for delivering the thing. And and like I'm not I'm not trying to say like this was some mammoth undertaking or something. It was like a, you know, start to end it was like a month's work or whatever. Uh, and not even that because other people were doing other things besides this. Uh, and it was only a couple of people, you know, working on it in my team. Um, so it's 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 not we're not building pyramids here, but nevertheless, like you know, even small features can blow out if you if you you know stumble. Um, so we we wrote this little roadmap, which was essentially like proof of concept to MVP to version one, to then version two in the future, um, which uh, I guess we're in in the kind of version two space now. Uh, so I described that and, and some of the kind of like project management aspects and uh, and things like that. Um, but then after I kind of get done with that side of things, I start to talk kind of a bit more philosophically um, about uh, development in general and especially like how, how Haskell makes life good um, some of the time. And I think... Uh, like the the touchstone of the article is is revisiting this saying you know um avoid success at all costs um which is from uh simon's wearing the hair shirt presentation um which itself was kind of like a retrospective i think on 15 years of haskell um so that was a while ago now um and i i love pretty much everything about this <laughs> This presentation because it's like simultaneously like super technical, um, but also highly philosophical and humorous, and it's all in Comic Sans, which I'm sure most of you could have guessed. But yeah, if you if you haven't read it, do yourself a favor. It's on like Microsoft Researchers site, but if you just search for wearing the hair shirt Haskell, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, and uh, yeah. For those of you who don't know what a what a hair shirt is, I think it was like a <laughs> something that monks would wear, and it was very itchy. Um, so it was like a, a discipline um, activity. You would wear this shirt, and you would be like, "Ah, oh, this sucks," but I, you know, have such <laughs> piety that I won't tell anyone it sucks, or something like that. Yeah. I'm sure I'm getting the history of hair shirts horribly wrong, <laughs> but that's my understanding. Um, but anyway, so the idea is like. Uh, to avoid su success at all costs. Well, like the modern kind of interpretation of that is to put parentheses around success at all costs. Um, so like, we don't actually want to avoid success. We just want to kind of like avoid um, doing 
short-term things uh, that would compromise the long-term goals and vision. Um, and so, yeah, like from a Haskell perspective, that was all about, you know, let's let's use uh, let's stick to this kind of lazy paradigm with tight classes and um, and uh, you know strong types. Uh, and even if it's painful, we won't really compromise on that. We'll um, we'll figure out how to overcome the the hurdles that are associated with that in a in a principled way, maybe later. Uh, but we're not going to, um, you know, suddenly kind of uh, <laughs> you know, turn our language into Ruby on Rails in order to kind of get some short term wins in the web development space. Um, but I think it, it was even a broader goal than than I've stated. It was it was kind of about being able to be a research platform and and all sorts of things like that. But it's uh, yeah, it's very cool. But anyway, so so my thesis is kind of like, well, sometimes you should do that, um, even for you know projects and products and companies and and things like that. Like if you're if you're able to kind of achieve a broader goal some of these short-term annoyances uh, that you've got to figure out um, are the, the cost of admission, I guess. Yeah, I, it reminds me of um, um, my favorite fa favorite person that I like talking about, of course, Christopher Alexander, in his, in his kind of description of like how you build buildings, you know, how you should build buildings, you know, is maybe like this kind of constant refactoring process that you talk that you that you said you found really useful in Haskell. So, as as you know, I like anything that makes me think of Christopher Alexander. So, I got pretty excited at um, at that at that connection there. But but one thing in particular I was wondering about is one of your colleagues has this very famous article: "Pars don't validate." Right. You mentioned a connection between your your approach and that approach. And I actually didn't quite get it from the article. So I was wondering if you could oh, sure. explain that a little bit more. Yeah, well, um, for those who aren't familiar, um, Alexis King um, wrote this very great blog post called Paths Don't Validate, um, which is essentially about, uh, you know, don't just check something, try and get something useful out of it while you're checking, right? Um, and then you'll you'll just like have a great time because you'll avoid having to kind of write the same code twice and you know you'll you'll ensure that you're actually using the check and you know there's there's many benefits to this idea it's like don't write a validator and then a parser or whatever just kind of like write the parser and make sure you get out something that um structurally you know guarantees that you've you've done the right thing um, and especially in, in a language like Haskell, you can take that quite far. Maybe too far, who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> Very sensible idea, though. Mm. I like it, yeah. But yeah, I referenced that, I think maybe for a few reasons, but I think, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's a strange kind of tension uh, in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to be very correct, but also wanting to be very flexible. And, and I'm sure there are some circumstances where these two things aren't really at odds. But I think like the point I make is like, yeah, you, you do kind of want to get to that parse don't validate point, but you might not necessarily want to start at that point. 
um, because by kind of, uh, you know, adopting a very uh, rigid um, scaffolding, so to speak, like early on, it, it becomes maybe kind of onerous to very quickly um, change your ideas as they are expressed in code, right? Um, so maybe maybe initially uh, validation is okay, is kind of the, the point I make. Um, but, you know, I do try and reconcile the two because I, I really do like the, the parse don't validate idea as well, right? And so I'm like, well, rather than kind of seeing it as an either-or, instead it's 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 more of a spectrum and it's not even a spectrum it's more of a journey right it's like you can start out in a very kind of flexible and maybe unprincipled way um that lets you uh you know sketch so to speak and then once you've kind of like got your own thinking figured out then uh you know you can you can shore things up and you can start adopting that approach and things like that um and there's there's a few reasons why i kind of um <clears throat> recommended doing that um like i suppose if 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 it's a very small project you know with just one person and you're a genius then you can just start with the buzz don't validate right away right because um there's there's no downside right you just you know what you want to do so that's great yeah that's true but yeah especially if you've got a got a few people who are kind of depending on each other's outputs and stuff like that uh often it often it can be quicker to kind of do something quick and dirty well you know tautologically it is mm. um and then get get something in place which other people might have been blocked on um and you can you can then do some kind of like testing of the kind of business domain as well like is this actually solving what i want it to solve even though it might be giving you the wrong answer sometimes and things like that like if you can get it done in an hour even if you're gonna have to throw it away later you should probably yeah. still do that you know just because, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it lets things keep flowing, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's a really interesting. I really like this idea that you're bringing up about like the kind of the either or versus a spectrum, and mm -hmm. I think that's really mm -hmm. subtle and useful. Like I've seen that at play in kind of other industries, as you know, I'm really excited about quantum computing, and people mm -hmm. there are starting to get excited about this idea of like. Well, maybe like proper quantum computers are like 10 years away, mm. but like what can we do in this kind of middle ground and just kind of coming up, like even acknowledging that there can be a middle ground and oh, yeah. then being willing to work on it, I think is uh -huh. like subtle, but very powerful idea. Yeah. Cause I remember people had so much hate for that, like annealing stuff or whatever. What was the company? D-Wave. D-Wave. Yeah. Oh, people hated it. It's not Absolutely. real quantum computing. Yeah, yeah. Very true. <laughs> People still, <laughs> who's yeah. to say, conflicting views. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know anything yeah, about yeah. D-Wave, but I know that people were very upset that it wasn't, like, you know, religiously quantum. They were. They were so upset. Yeah. Um, yeah, and actually, I had another question from your article, because I know, I happen to know Twig is kind of very interested in this area, but you were kind of saying one thing that you really want to see in the Haskell ecosystem is just a radically faster compiler. Oh, yeah. Um, because you were saying it might kind of enable some different workflows. What kind of workflows were you thinking about? Uh, how can I put this? Like, 
the the Haskell compiler is is just like amazing, right? So I'm not I'm not trying to detract from the work that's been done on it because it's it truly is kind of incredible. Um, but it's also very very slow, right? Um, you know, there's there's no denying it. Like it can take a, a great deal of time to to build even you know, fairly small things, um, and it's it's prohibitive in a lot of ways to doing doing some things that you might want to do, like even you know, fast feedback cycles on continuous integration and things like that are, are almost impossible. I guess like they are impossible for like uh, you know smaller devs who don't want to pay an enormous cloud CI bill. Um, but even for for companies that do, the, these things still take like half an hour to build, um, and that is very you know um, it makes certain kinds of workflows like impossible like you almost want to be able to like you know do a push and then that minute you kind of get a response and it's and then it's, it can kind of feel like this more uh conversational style of of workflow you know what i mean and i'm not saying like you know like i understand like what what ghc is doing is is very complicated so i'm sure it um there are limitations and it can't there are there's a certain point which it can't get faster than but it does feel incredibly incredibly slow at the moment um, and especially like between certain kind of releases and things like that you'll see kind of performance go up and down and and often there'll be like a a very small thing causing a very large slowdown and and stuff like that and so yeah i guess um i don't just want to be like negative about it I want to. I want to be very clear. Like I, I very much appreciate the work that um, all of the um, devs are doing on that. But um, maybe there's some way to um, to improve the speed. I wish. Uh, I wish I could do it, but I'm. I'm not a GHC dev, and uh, when I tried to get into that world a few years ago, I found it very difficult and decided to spend my time doing less important things. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, like maybe, maybe there's a way to do it and maybe someone can throw some money at it or something like that and, uh, and dedicate some resources to actually kind of ensuring that it, it always speeds up or every release like significantly or something like that. That's my naive dream. I'm sure there's, um, there's complications making that difficult, but, um, I kind of feel like we're we're on the precipice here because for so many years like if you would say like you know Haskell in production people would would laugh in your face and then kick you out of the building and tell security mm. not to let you back in but Definitely. but now like there's a, quite a few companies doing it like yeah Hasura's one there's a bunch in the crypto space there's there's a few kind of other notable examples um, where it's where now we we can say well you know people are using this in production right and so I feel like we're almost at a tipping point where we could get a bunch more adoption you know tooling has just um, improved tenfold in my opinion with all of the language service stuff that's happened recently um, it's not perfect but it's a hell of a lot better than what it was five years ago you know um, and so you know like it it could happen and one of these huge um, obstacles is the compiler speed you know there's other problems as well for sure um, but yeah like I guess uh, the reason why I'm kind of yelling at everyone about this is because 
um, we're closer than we've ever been, right? And it's it just felt like so impossible that you could um, you could be in a space where people are kind of like in mainstream companies are, are delivering code in Haskell in production. It, it would have been crazy, but um, yeah, like like we're on the edge here, you know. Like uh, so, I'm I'm feeling ambitious. It's like well, if we can just get a little bit further, then. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I know Richard is definitely pushing forward. Richard Eisenberg from Twig is pushing forward with some GHC performance stuff. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hopefully that that helps a little bit. I, I the CI thing I can definitely relate to. I'm participating in some pull requests, and when people, you know, rightly give me feedback and like, oh, you should change this. I feel guilty that I'm kicking off another build just for like mm-hmm. adding a comment or something. I yeah, just yeah. feel so bad. I'm like, oh, why? have a dream that like yeah you're not wrong like it's a it's kind of guilt thing or and even it's like you'll be like well we're going to turn it off in all these branches so you know like we'll we'll make sure our build is cached and all of these things and it's like that's terrible it sh- you know see i should be on on all branches and it should yeah should be able to build it from scratch in a way that yeah. doesn't take an hour you know like but actually one one thought kind of occurred to me that I think I heard in another podcast, but like, I'd just be interested in how do you feel is the kind of the onboarding process or what do you feel the world is like for someone that's like quite new to Haskell and putting them in a kind of real world environment on like a brand new project? Do you feel like it's, I guess what I'm asking is like, do you feel like it's a good place for juniors who kind of haven't experienced Haskell before to like come and get on board or do you feel it's a bit too complicated at the moment? Uh, well, you know, it's, um, it depends. It's a (laughs) very useful answer. Um, I'd say it's, there's, there's easier ways to get into development. (laughs) That's still true. Um, but depending on what you're building, actually, like some things are very, very well suited to Haskell, uh, and you'll have a hard time finding a different ecosystem that's actually easier. Uh, but those are kind of the rare exceptions. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I say go for it, right? Like if you like mm. if you like it and you like the ideas and you're kind of getting started out, you'll learn a hell of a lot, right? And I think um, I think you know if you've got a bit of sticking power, you'll have a wonderful time and you'll you'll get over the hurdles because the hurdles are lower than they've ever been, right? Yeah. Um, and if people have done it in the past, then, you know, you can definitely do it now. Uh, but yeah. that being said, like, it's it can be frustrating for sure. Like, there are a lot of things to learn and there are kind of a lot of, um, I won't call it like sharp edges, like you'll break everything in production, um, but like sharp edges in that, you know, it's the things aren't quite as, as friendly as you might hope they would be. It doesn't feel like, you know, some of the Rust error messages or things like that where you just get a warm, fuzzy embrace of, of you know, mm. underlined <laughs> error messages or whatever. Mm. But, um, yeah, so so I think, I, I mean, I always have a hard time recommending people do these kind of things because I don't, I don't want to be responsible when they come back and they're like, oh, I had a terrible time. <laughs> Why did you tell me I should learn that for? <laughs> Um, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, yeah, why not learn it? Like, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket, but like, give it a go. Why, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of wonderful stuff there and you'll, you'll really have a great time if you, if you can kind of 
get into the flow of it and, and start to build a bit of an intuition. All right. Well, uh, this is the compositional podcast. And as a result, mm. Lyndon, I have mm. one last question for you. Mm. If you could compose any two things, <laughs> what mm. would they be? Oh, my God. Um, you've put me on the <laughs> I can spot give you here. my answer. I can, gi- I can give you my answer. Because I, I, right. I obviously thought of the question, thought of the mm. answer, mm-hmm. inspired by what I can see in your background. Oh, yeah? So, if I could compose any two things, it right. would be a plant uh-huh. and speakers. Oh, and I, I could have that. a speaker plant. That's very that cool. Decorative and sound good. Yeah, that is... Um, <laughs> That's very cool. Did you ever see the movie Funky Forest? (laughs) 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 Sounds great. I'm pretty sure that should be like rated beyond R, like at the point of like a philosophical (laughs) explicit rating. It's just (laughs) truly weird. But uh, but some of the some of the scenes involve um, people playing a forest like a musical instrument. It's very cool. (laughs) <laughs> oh wow, that's great! Yeah, it's uh, it's worth a watch idea. for sure. Just okay. steady yourself. <laughs> okay, um, I'll be prepared. I'll prepare my mind. Yeah, compose. Oh gosh, <laughs> I really feel like I'm sure there's something great I can come up with here, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm struggling. You know, I'm struggling. <laughs> what have you seen outside recently? Surely you've seen something like. You've been walking around, you've seen... Well, today all I did was I took my dog to the park, so maybe like there's a way to kind of compose a dog with roller skates, I think would be very cool. Okay, pretty <laughs> pretty <I think> good. <laughs> maybe someone's pretty done good. it already, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> okay, I like it. Well, thanks um, thanks heaps for joining us, joining us today. It's been really nice to hear about oh, my you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Noon. Thanks,